This morning's reading is Romans 8, verses 19 to 23. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this time this afternoon. We do thank you uh, for the joy it is to come amidst the sunshine, amidst the beauty and the backdrop of your creation, uh, to come and glorify you, the giver of this beauty, uh, the one from whom all this originates. Uh, so, Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we give you glory this afternoon in this place, uh, in our time here together. We ask, Father, that now uh, you would speak to us, not just generally in your creation, but that you'd speak to us particularly, especially in your word now as we sit under it, as we seek uh, by faith and by the help of your spirit uh, to obey. And we pray these things uh, in your name. Amen. Well, good afternoon, Christ City East Vancouver. <laughs> Got like one of those waves. Awesome. We'll get better at that. Maybe not. Maybe this is just who we are. Uh, my name is Jake. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you following the gathering. It's good to be with you this afternoon. Uh, this week, we're continuing in our We Are Christ City series, where we look at different areas of our lives that we as a church are to act faithfully and responsibly. Now, last week, we looked at hospitality. Uh, this week, we turn now and consider... What does it mean as Christians in Vancouver in the 21st century uh, to care for our physical world, to care for creation? Well, on December 26, 1966, Lynn White Jr., a medieval historian in science and technology, uh, presented a paper for the Association for the Advancement of Science entitled The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis. The objective, according to White, was to get to the bottom of why we have treated and why we continue to treat our world so poorly. White believed that he had found the answer, and he said this, The victory of Christianity over paganism was the greatest psychic, that's mental, the greatest psychic revolution in the history of our culture. By destroying pagan animism, Christianity made it possible to exploit nature in a mood of indifference to the feelings of natural objects. White also said that evening, especially in its Western form, Christianity is the most anthropocentric, that's man-centered religion, the world has seen. The burden of our ecological crisis, a burden that very much uh, persists to our day, according to White, according to White, lies at the feet of Christianity, at the feet of followers of Jesus, uh, like you and I. Christianity, he says, with its emphasis on the person who is over and above creation. Christianity, he says, with its emphatic rejection of pagan animism, that God is not in his creation, but above and separate from it. Christianity, he says, with its overall thrust of superiority. He says Christianity is the problem of pollution, really. Now, as you can imagine, the address and its subsequent publishing the following year uh, garnered a lot of conversation amongst Christians, especially given that it was the 1960s, 
Some wondered whether their faith in Jesus was compatible, was compatible with their newfound passion in this new thing called the environmental movement. Uh, They wondered, as one pastor asked in the talk, can faith be green? Can faith be green? Is it, as White and others would have us believe, true that Christianity is incompatible with active care for the created world? Or, or, is there a way in which our Christian faith uniquely gives us the foundation and motivation to care for the world around us? Moreover, does our faith compel us to care for the created world? Is this, is creation care a matter of obedience when it comes to following Jesus? Well, today I want to argue that Scripture paints a picture of creation not just as the setting or the backdrop on which the events of the Bible, the events of our lives take place, but creation as a key character in the redemptive narrative or or the big good news story of the Bible. To do this, I want to look at three things. So if you're taking notes, really simply, I want us to consider three things. First is this, the foundations of creation. The foundations of creation. Here we'll look at Genesis and see what is foundationally true about the relationship that we are to have with creation. What are the big rocks you need to put in the jar for us to go forward uh, wisely and biblically? So first, the foundations of creation. Second thing is this, the subjection of creation. And here we'll ask, how does the coming of sin into the world change the dynamic of the relationship between us and the creation? How does sin, rebellion against God and his good ordering, change the way we relate to the created world? Finally, we'll see the redemption of creation. How does the life, death, resurrection, ascension, soon return of Jesus impact how we deal with the created world today? Is the gospel good news for us, or is it good news for us and the world around us as well? Well, we began last week in Genesis, so if you have your Bibles, go to Genesis with me. We're going to start there again. Genesis 1, verse 1 is where we're going to begin. Here's the first big rock we need to put in the jar. It's this. God is the creator. We are the creation. God is the creator. We, humans, and and the rest of creation are the creation. Genesis 1, 1, it says this. Maybe you've heard it before. Really simple. In the beginning, in the beginning, that's the beginning of everything, God created the heavens and the earth. The teaching is simple, but it couldn't be more foundational to our time together this afternoon. God is distinct and separate from his creation. Now, this doesn't mean, as we'll see, that he's uninvolved, uh, indifferent, or not near to his creation. Rather, simply, that creation is not God, and God is not in the creation. And, and if you're new to following Jesus, you're new to church, you're new to, to this, all this stuff, this is really important for us to grasp. We're not talking about pantheism here, where God is the world and the world is God. And, and Lynn White is right. It's not animism. Uh, we're not saying uh, that each rock and river and rabbit have within them a piece of the deity. Distinct to the Christian way of viewing the world is believing and receiving and resting in the truth that God is not us and we are not God. Further to that, we do not believe things came here by accident. Paul says in Romans 4 that God is the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that did not or that do not rather exist. I saw a blog post this week that read like this, the title at least. Seven steps to manifesting anything you want. And then there was like a little dash and it said, including money. 
Seven steps to manifesting anything you want, including money. So naturally, I clicked on it, because, like, who's not interested in that, right? Uh, the article talked about, you know, we just need to speak things into existence. If we just said it out loud, the universe would, would, would come back to us, and they'd give us this good gift. Uh, the Bible says something completely different. Try it right now. But we cannot manifest something out of nothing. You, you can say it right now. Say rabbits. Or, or car. It just doesn't happen like that, right? It doesn't work like that. You and I cannot speak things into existence. We cannot manifest something out of nothing. But here's the good news of Genesis 1. God can do that. And he has done that. In Genesis 1, we read of this creation narrative where God, by the very power of his word, Hebrews 1 tells us, by the very power of his word, he is speaking things that do not exist. That, that have no other particles or molecules that do not exist. He is speaking them by the power and the wisdom of his word into existence. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. This is our first foundational idea that God is the creator foundationally and we are the creation. We are creatures. The second idea is this. This is a good idea for us to consider that we are one creature among many. We've seen who God is. He alone is a creator. Now we need to learn who we are. If you look at your Bibles in Genesis 1, as we come to the sixth day of creation, God has already created and separated light from darkness, the waters from the sky, land from the waters. He's already spoken into existence uh, plants and fruit trees, stars and the moon, the birds and the creatures of the sea. And on day six, notice this, on day six, God creates both Land, animals, and humanity. That's interesting. Genesis 1, 24 to 26. If you have a Bible, look with me. If not, look on the screen. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our own image, in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Notice a few things here. First, six times, if we were to go back to look at Genesis 1, six times creation is declared as good, as good, before we're even on the scene. Before we're even there, it is a good creation. And when we do arrive on day six, this isn't by accident. Notice, humanity, we don't even have a day to ourselves, right? We, we, we share a day. It's the land animals and us. The land animals and, and us. We are included on the sixth day with the animals. As one scholar notes, the apex of creation, the apex of creation is the seventh day, the Sabbath day when God rests. It's there that creation is whole and complete and full. We do not complete creation. We are not the missing link, the missing piece that completes creation. It's the seventh day rest that completes creation. Further, in Genesis 2, if you kept on reading in your Bibles to the right, we find humanity and animals come to be, are produced, you could say, uh, in the same way. We are both living beings formed from the earth. Look at Genesis 2, verse 7. Look at how we came to be. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Now look at the account of animals a few verses later. Now out of the ground, out of the ground, 
The Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Again, if we keep on reading in the Bible, we come to Exodus 20 and we find in Exodus 20 the Sabbath command to rest, to rest one day a week. But we find, interestingly enough, that the Sabbath command is both for humans and for their animals who are doing all this work for them. It's for both the animals and the humans. Writing in response to Lynn White in 1970, all this considered, Francis Schaeffer, he's an author and theologian, he summarizes it well when he says this, All things, all things, including man, are equal in their origin as far as creation is concerned. We, we could summarize it like this. Biblically speaking, we are not gods to do with creation whatever we would like. We are not gods to do with creation whatever we would like. We are, and, and we'll nuance this in just a bit, we are one amongst the creatures. As creatures, we learn that creation does not belong to us. Right? My house does not belong to my table. Right? My lamp is not the owner of my home. I'm a, he's a lamp. It's a, if you want to put a gender to it, he's a lamp, I guess, or she's a table. Neither does it fundamentally exist for us. We are limited beings. Creation belongs to the Lord, and it foundationally exists for His glory. If you were to read Psalm 104 this week, and I'd encourage you, read Psalm 104 this week. You would see that everything, the trees, uh, the mountains, uh, animals, all give glory to God, and they're doing all these things. And if you read Psalm 104, you'll see this. They're all doing things that have nothing to do with us. In their reproduction, they give glory to God. In their migration patterns, they give glory to God. It has nothing to do with us. It's God's world for his glory. We read exactly this in Colossians 1.16. Paul is speaking of Jesus. He says there, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And listen to this. All things were created through him and for him. Through him, through Jesus, and for Jesus. We have to. We have to start at this place of humility this afternoon. We are limited creatures, and that's a good thing. See, it's only from this position of humility that you and I can watch shows like Planet Earth and like pfft, have our mind blown. It's only from this position of humility that you and I can go and stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and pfft, like have our mind blown. It's only from this position of humility that we can drive up the Sea to Sky Highway, as I did a few days ago, and, and have our mind blown as we try not to crash into other cars because of God's wonderful beauty, because of the world He's created. Again, we'll see in a moment how we're different from the rest of creation, but an overemphasis on how we are different can lead us to thinking ourselves as uncreated, limitless, Sovereign beings who, like God, can speak things into existence. Who, like God, can do whatever we want with the world. Who look at the created world and think, eh, we could do better. And that's just not true. Our second foundational idea is that we are one creature among many. Third one. The third foundational idea is that we have to establish that though one creature among many, bearing the image of God, we've been given the task to keep and rule over creation. Look back at Genesis 1 with me. Genesis 1, verse 26, this time reading all the way to verse 28. Then God said, 
Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 37. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and notice this, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, we said this last week, but we are made in the image of God. Foundation idea in the life of a Christian. We are made in the image of God. We are God's image bearers, his, his kingly representatives over creation. It's not dogs. It's not whales. It's not dolphins. I don't care how smart dolphins are. It's not chimpanzees. It's us. And as God's image bearers, it's our job, we've been given this divine task, this divine appointment, uh, Genesis 1 says, to rule and subdue. And this is precisely, we need to see this, precisely where we uh, lose people like Lynn White, where we lose people like Paul Watson, the founder of Greenpeace. Ruling and subduing, even in their original Genesis context, these are, are harsh words that have with them overtones of military conquest. But that's not exactly how we are to understand them in Genesis 1. The basic idea here is that the creation, even before sin enters the picture, that creation is wild. It's wild. If you've ever been to a remote part of the earth before, you know that this is, this is true. Creation is, is wild. Uh, growing up, I would do canoe trips in Algonquin Park. And, and, and there are some things that we would do in the city, knowing that there's a hospital nearby, that we would not do in Algonquin Park knowing that there was no hospital nearby, that if you did something stupid, uh, you would die. Creation is, is, is wild. That's the idea here in Genesis 1. The good creation is still yet a wild creation. The ruling and subduing of Genesis 1 is not the unrestrained pillaging of creation, but is more like the restraining, uh, the ordering needed to bring a wild creation under control in order for, for the purpose of making everything, everyone flourish. If you're a gardener, you know that this is true. You know that if you just leave your garden out back and say, you know what, garden, whatever you want to do, garden, I'm just cool with that. You want to do weeds this year? We're good with weeds, right? You want to do carrots? You can do carrots. You know, like whatever you want to do, garden, like nothing will happen, right? You'll have a, a patch of, I, I don't know, I don't garden, of something, right? You have to tend to the garden. Again, I'm assuming these things. You have to tend to the garden, water the garden. If there are birds coming and eating your stuff, maybe you have to put a net up, right? You, you have to tend to creation, plant in rows or, or order it. It's the idea that's happening here. To this one end, one scholar, he writes this. The earth does not just need to be kept, but listen, listen to what he says, but also controlled. It needs further shaping beyond what God has done in the original creative moments of the cosmos. This is why, as Christians, we must emphasize both our similarity. Hey, we're created beings. The world is not ours. It does not exist for our glory. We emphasize both our similarity as well as our dissimilarity. And yet, we alone are image bearers tasked with bringing order to the chaos and wildness that we find in the rest of creation. I, I love how the Bible, I love how it angers both the hippie uh, and the industrialist. It angers both the hippie and the industrialist. The hippie is angry because we think humans are more special than the rest of creation. And it's true. 
We are. But the industrialist is angry because at the end of the day, we're reminded that we're just creatures. We're just creatures. And if mere creatures, then this world belongs to the creator. Our job is simply to respectfully bring order to the chaos. The first pages of the Bible give us these foundational ideas for caring for the created world. But as we saw when we recapped the story last week, sin, brokenness, rebellion against God soon enters the equation. We turn now to consider the subjection of creation. How has sin impacted our relationship with the physical world? In Genesis 3, we find that there's a simple thought being put to the woman by the serpent. And it goes like this. Genesis 3, verse 1. And he said to the woman, did God actually say? Did God actually say? The fall of humanity, indeed the fall of everything, has its roots in our failure to believe God and his good ordering of things. And we wonder, sometimes out loud, could we do it better? What if we were in charge? Before sin, the role of ruling and subduing was one understood in light of our own creatureliness, our own position as just mere kingly representatives. But ruling and subduing unhinged, unhinged from these foundational truths leads to exactly what Lynn White is talking about. And on that point, we have to concede he's right. It is the violent, unrestrained ruling and subduing that would only be appropriate for a God to do, which is exactly what we've made ourselves up to be. So our relationship, this shouldn't come as a surprise to us. Our relationship with creation has changed. In Genesis 9, 1 to 3, we read that the animals who would once willingly come to Adam to be named will now be in fear of all men as God gives us permission to, to eat them. In Genesis 3 and 4, we see that for Adam, Cain, all their descendants, work, work will now be done in the context of brokenness, hard labor, and potential fruitlessness. Creation itself will feel the effects of our sin. The physical world will feel the physical effects of our sin. It's interesting. If you read the Old Testament prophets, they'll describe Israel's failure to do justice. They're describing Israel's sin. And what they will say is something like, listen, Israel's failure to do justice, Israel's sin has a direct relationship to the state of the land, to the state of the physical world. Hear what the prophet Jeremiah says. Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? Look at verse 13. And the Lord says this, Because I have forsaken my law that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them. I could give you six more passages like that. The Old Testament prophet saw that there was a relationship between our sin, yours and I sin, humanity's sin, and the physical state of the world. In all this, though, we must remember that the creation, or rather the entrance of sin into creation, does not make it bad or disposable. Creation is not bad or disposable. It's not like a chipped cup that we can throw away that's now unusable. Rather, it is a creation that is subjected in need of liberation. Now, earlier we heard Romans 8, 19 to 23 being read. And there Paul began, do you remember? 
For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Creation was ours to care for, a responsible ruling and subduing, but we failed. And with our fall, with our failure, so goes creation. Quite literally, we have taken creation down with us. So much so that Paul can now say that we both, all of creation, and we ourselves, we together, both of us, we groan for liberation. Groan for liberation. This brings us to the third component of creation care. The redemption of creation. Why is the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and soon return of Jesus good news for both us and the created world? That's the question we want want to answer here. Romans 8, verses 20 to 23, we read this. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Just as both groups, the creation and the children of God, are subject to the effects of sin, are subject to the effects of rebellion, so too will both groups, will both groups, the creation and the children of God, so too one day will we both know what it means to be set free, to be liberated, to receive wholeness. How will this happen? How has this happened? Through the events of the gospel. Listen. We're told that the death and resurrection of Jesus in a new and physical body is foreshadowing what is to come for all of us. One day, Jesus is coming back, and thankfully, I could use a new body at this point, thankfully, we will get a new physical body, new resurrection body. Likewise, the death and resurrection of Jesus is not about the redemption of people only and the burning of the planet, There is to be a complete peace, a complete harmony, a complete reconciliation in the renewed heavens and new earth. This holistic redemption, this holistic gospel is what we read about in Colossians 1 verse 19. For in him, that's Jesus, in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself, listen, all things. He is reconciling to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's a reconciliation that will be pronounced at the end of the age, at the return of Jesus, as we read in Revelation. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Not, I am making new things, but I am renewing, I am making new what has always existed. And just as the Lord will make you and I new, so too will he make that tree and that rabbit and that raccoon outside also new. He is making all things new. Maybe not raccoons. The good news is for us and the earth. It's for us and the earth. There is full and complete redemption coming for all creation. That's the gospel. So the question we have to ask is, well, what do I do now? What I do on this side of eternity. As we prepare to respond, I want to speak to three groups of people. 
Three groups of people, I think, are in here this afternoon. Maybe you're here, and you would consider yourself an environmentalist, uh, but you don't know Jesus. First off, welcome here. I, I want to encourage you in your work. I want to applaud you in your work. But I also want to ask you a question. Do you see the more compelling picture given for environmentalism that we find in the Bible? Do you see the more compelling story, the more compelling narrative in Scripture? Oftentimes, the reasons given by environmentalists for doing what they do, oftentimes, and it's not wrong, but they're driven by pragmatic reasons, right? If we don't do this, this species dies, which affects this whole ecosystem, and then we're all screwed, right? Driven by pragmatic reasons. Listen to what Francis Schaeffer has to say, and again, in his response to Lynn White, he wrote this. But I must be clear that I am not loving the tree or whatever is standing in front of me for a pragmatic reason. Rather, it will have a pragmatic result, the very pragmatic result that the men involved in ecology are looking for. But as a Christian, I do not do it for the practical or pragmatic results. Listen, I do it because it is right and because God is the maker. And then suddenly, things drop into place. Laboring for the preservation and flourishing of creation, not only makes sense as a Christian, I would argue it makes most sense as a Christian. It doesn't only make sense, it makes most sense as a Christian. You were created, Christ City, you were created to humbly bring order to chaos, to tend to creation that it, along with humanity, might flourish. You were created to do this as an outworking, as an outpouring of what Jesus has done for you. The wholeness that Jesus purchased on the cross for you, a wholeness that you can know today, a completeness that you can grab hold of today by faith, you are to bring that to every sphere of your life. And I can't think of a more compelling narrative for caring for creation than that. That's the first group of people. There's a second group. Perhaps you're here this afternoon... And you consider yourself like a hardcore Christian environmentalist. Again, let me encourage you. Let me applaud you uh, in your work, in your uh, recognizing your own humble creatureliness. But perhaps, maybe there's a correction that needs to be made here. Let me remind you that made in the image of God, humans are special. Humanity is special. We have a special role to play. The other week I saw this ad on the back of, of, of a bus um, by the Vancouver Humane Society. And on it, uh, there is an arrow pointing to a cow that said food, and an arrow pointing to a dog that said friend. And then below it was this question, uh, have you ever asked yourself why? What was being implied, I gathered, was that if you wouldn't eat your golden retriever, uh, why would you eat a cow? And on one hand, the answer is like really obvious. Like, cow is delicious, golden retriever, right? No, someone's had golden retriever in here? Okay, fine. There's a theological belief at play here, isn't there? A belief that says we are only and totally and completely fellow creatures. That we're only just one of the animals. That we are entirely the same as them. We see that all the time in Vancouver, don't we? Right? Dog uh, bakeries, dog spas, uh, cat bakeries, cat spas, right? Y- you name it, it exists, right? I-, I met someone the other day who said, yeah, you want to meet my children? And it was like a dog was there, and I was confused. Uh, I didn't know how that worked. Okay, 
This happens all the time in, in our city, doesn't it? We're just one of the creatures, just one amongst many. And to presume in this worldview that we are something more would be foolishness, uh, even immoral. Now, do we need to think wisely about where our food comes from? Absolutely, without a doubt. But we must not make cows, dogs, the mountains, or rivers into something that they are not. Into something that they are not. The invitation today is to care for creation in the exact way that it was intended. And in doing so, I think we become more fully human. We, we act appropriately with the rest of creation. To this end, we must be cautious what quote-unquote green organizations and products we throw our weight behind, the ones we support. We have to ask the question, what's the underlying theological belief at play here? That's the second group. Last group. I suspect, because I know many of you, if not all of you, I suspect that there are some of you here this afternoon who think creation care is really just peripheral. Like it's a, it's a sermon for the summer when you're looking for filler sermons about creation care. It's just this peripheral thing. Really, when pushed, not really that important. Now, I doubt that this is your conscious thought, but at the root of that sort of thinking is this belief that you and I are little gods, that we're little gods, that we are unlimited beings who can do with creation whatever we like. And the call this morning is really simple. Rather, this afternoon is really simple. We need to see our own finite creatureliness, that you and I are mere creatures made from the dust like animals with the noble task of representing God's good rule on earth as we rule and subdue, hear me, responsibly. We have drank deeply of our cultural waters that put ourselves at the center of the narrative, that see all of creation, people, animals, the land, as things to be used and abused to our own advantage. Things to aid us in our never-ending quest for comfort and convenience. Further, this entire conversation has become so politicized that we're unable to see the very clear ways in which our wildly irresponsible ruling and subduing is destroying God's creation. As a church, we need to be able to speak clearly on this. Let me remind you, this is God's world. This is God's world. It exists for His glory, not for ours. This is not a leftist, tree hugger, or hippie position. It is a thoroughly biblical one. To all of us, wherever we land in one of those groups, we must think deeply about what it means to be creatures who rule and subdue wisely and responsibly. Like much of the Christian life, there aren't clear and exacting guidelines here. Don't you hate when that happens? How we do creation care is complex, requires patience, understanding, and learning. But if there's one thing we can, agree, we can agree upon as we go into a time of response is that we can no longer pretend creation care is periphery to our Christian discipleship. If we are to love others well, and can't we all agree that we want to love other people well? No? Okay. That's next week's sermon. If we are to love others well, we must show in word and deed to this city, to Hastings Sunrise, a gospel message, a good news message that proclaims the renewal of all things. 
To preach anything else would be an incomplete gospel message, and we would be failing at our task. Would you stand with me as we respond? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.